My vision is to say, can we have users pay lower fees, LPs make more money, and validators make more money? The way I see that is to exceed and not participate in MEV auctions. DeFi will never compete with CeFi if it sucks and it can provide better execution. But my alternative to say, let's not have an auction, let's not reach a maximum point, but be bigger. Scraping Bits is brought to you by the following sponsors. Fastlane Labs, Trustless MEV. MEV Protocol, maximize your ETH staking value with MEV ETH exclusively on MEV.io and Composable. Execute any intent on any chain coming soon to Mantis.app. That is M-A-N-T-I-S.A-P-P. GM GM everyone, my name's Tagachi, the host of Scraping Bits, and I'm back again with someone special, Uri, the CEO and co-founder of Blockstrap. How's it going? It's good, and you call me special, so now I feel even better. <laughs> Just for the people that aren't familiar with you, who are you and what do you do? So Uri, CEO and co-founder of BlocksRoute. We're called BlocksRoute because we route blocks and transactions. So BlocksRoute is the infrastructure company. We propagate transactions and blocks really, really fast, basically at the speed of light. And it kind of started from my PhD thesis in computer networks, where in 2010 or so, we're kind of like, oh, can we propagate blocks faster? Can we propagate transactions? And back then, you know, these were the block size were days off Bitcoin. Maybe we can scale blockchains. Maybe we can allow larger blocks, shorter time intervals. If the information moves faster, that was the initial idea when Blockstar came out. And then fast forward to the DeFi summer of 2020, all of a sudden, Everybody is using our services because it's the DeFi summer and everybody wants to see everybody else's transactions. They want to front run them. They want to send it privately and not to be seen. They want to hear what's happening really fast and want their transaction to reach the miners really, really quickly. So all of a sudden we became the go-to infrastructure for anybody trading DeFi. So we're not doing anything regarding scalability. We found product market fit then. And since then we've been very, very deep in DeFi and in MEV. I think in the peak of the bull market, we were routing one and a half billion dollars of trades per day for our users. So that's something like 40% of all DeFi on all the chains out there. So people use us for Ethereum and BSC and Polygon and Solana. These are the kind of stuff. I'm really a networking geek that had that idea how to send information really fast and I was on my way, I was doing my PhD and wanted to be a professor, but then like, oh, here's a cool idea. And it's a really promising product. So find myself starting a company, you know, blocked is like 50 people right now. And we're making millions of dollars per year and successful. So that did not go how I planned. Wow. Super crazy. What were the early days of this? What did it look like? And what were the biggest hurdles within this journey? Because we all see the success, right? And it's like, oh yeah, overnight success, but there's got to be some kind of struggle within this, right? Oh, there's a lot of hurdle and <laughs> difficulty along the way. Anybody who tell you the success stories, just not tell you about all the stuff that didn't work well along the way. Exactly. Yeah. So there are two things, one on the personal and one on the ecosystem. I'll start like ecosystem wise. And we started by doing one thing, sending information fast and getting all the miners and mining pools to connect to us. And that was a lot, like two years of work to get them connected. And then DeFi became a thing and everybody started using us. Then Flashbot came out and we're like, okay, is this competing with us? Is this like supported for us? Turns out it was great for us. So we started running a Flashbot relay and all of a sudden everybody who's anywhere between Wintermute and Jump 
to a search or in a basement in Taiwan and anywhere in between, everybody started using us. Then the merge and the move to POS and PBS came out and we became an MEV relay and we're also the small builder, but we're provided all the big builders are working with us. So really things change constantly in the ecosystem. We had a paid private transaction before even Flashboard existed. Then we started to give it for free because everybody, people stopped one because they had other options. So on the ecosystem, things are constantly changing. Even people were now looking at the MEV landscape, like, oh, we know where this is going. You have no yeah. idea where this is going. Things are changing drastically. POS, the merge happened like 15 months ago. Nothing is set yeah. in stone. Everything is still moving in this landscape. And you have to be super nimble and open-minded in this space to succeed. So that's kind of like on the ecosystem side. In terms of like challenges along the way, I think my favorite story in our second round, I think, Pantera invested in us. I like Pantera a lot. And they wanted to put a big check, $7 million. And I was like, oh no, like I'm not giving them that much equity. I'll have higher valuation. I, I took five, no more than five. And then March 20 happened and COVID, and this was before the COVID, oh. everything came crashing, right? Stock market crashes, crypto crash, everything crashes. And like, wait, we have runway for a year tops. I don't see any, like we, we had a round going, it failed. We didn't manage to raise anywhere close, not to the valuation nor the amount that we wanted. If we don't find a solution, I will have to fire 75 of the people in the company to continue going. Like we can't go on this run. And this was a giant burden. People I spoke with and they left their job because I told them, join me in this journey. This is going to be awesome. This is going to be great. This is going to be a giant success. And they left their easy, steady job and they joined Blocks out and they came up with, okay, how can I even let them go? That, that's not a possibility. So yeah. then we had the bull market and things turned out fine eventually. <laughs> but these were hard months. Oh, like yeah. this was like anywhere I go, this was at the back of my mind. If things don't turn around, I will have to fire everybody. And these are people that trusted me. I persuaded them to leave what they were doing and joining me in this journey. It was a really hard decision. So the lesson mm -hmm. I learned there, by the way, and anybody listening, always raise more capital. Don't have the bit, <laughs> oh, I'm giving too much. Our latest round in the previous bull market was led by SoftBank. Mm. When I started it, we were basically cash flow balanced. So the amount that we were spending was basically the amount we were. And I had like, 14 million dollars at the bank i didn't need to raise i know there's a bear market for me i want a giant war chest so i can keep going always raise more raise more and then when things don't go the way that you think they're going to go then you're good don't make the mistake of rejecting money so you know not to over dilute yourself etc this is a lesson i learned the hard way and i tell every first-time founder that i speak make sure you raise more than you need it's the greed, you know, you don't want to give away the equity, but in turn, if you don't have the capital, it will never grow. And so it doesn't matter anyway. So it's always better. It's exactly that. It's a bull market. I'm selling like at the valuation. I'm throwing a number. $80 million valuation. <laughs> but you know, in two years, it could be $800 million. Why would I sell it now? I should keep it. And you keep that. And then like the market change. Yeah. You know, nobody was expecting COVID. COVID hit. There are drastic changes that you don't know where they're going to come. You don't know what the market is going to do. Make sure you have more than you need. Do not reject money. Worst case scenario, okay, your upside is slightly smaller. Boo-hoo. <laughs>
You mentioned proof of stake 15 months ago, and I believe you had a builder out as well in that time. And I wonder, did you eventually wind it down? I think today it's still running, obviously not as competitive as the top three of Titan, Wintermere, and Beaver build. I think it's at like 0.12%. We're really a service provider. We right. have a builder, but just so more than anything, so we could provide a few additional services. And okay. eating your own dog food, basically. If we don't run a builder, then we don't know what it's like to be a builder. So our builder has like 1% win rate or something like that. What we really do is work in collaboration with the builders out there. All mm. the big ones are our partners. And some of them are also among our investors. Also some of the smaller ones, but definitely anybody who matters is in collaboration with us. What we really work on is providing better services for the validators, for the proposers, for the builders, for users, etc. If we wanted to make our builder better, we could have kept, if we have some order flow, we give it to that. We don't give it to somebody else. It would have improved. But that's not our business. My business isn't yeah. being a builder, just like when I was doing more DeFi and less MEV, somebody else would be the best trader. My job is yeah. to give the infrastructure for all the traders. So I yeah. always like to be the house rather than a player. It's like giving the shovels during a gold mine. It's exactly that. Yeah. Speaking of gold mines, <laughs> the relayer has got to be a gold mine of data, right? I never really knew this until recently, just because I've never experimented with relays. There's got to be some kind of edge you can acquire there. And funnily enough, there's not really any competition in relays either. You just have flashbots. Mm -hmm. That is the absolutely wrong take, okay? For the audience, what are relays? And just to keep everybody like on the same level, you have uh -huh. the validator, the proposer that can propose the next block. And you have all these block builders who want to offer it like, you know, I build a block and it would pay him a dollar. You build a block, it would pay him two. Somebody else would offer three, etc. And the proposer would generally speaking, pick the one that pays it the most. But you have a problem of trust between them, right? If the builder would just give the validator the block, the value would say, oh, I could just unbundle the block. I just let like, it kept some money to yourself. I will take the entire thing. Or even worse than that, take sandwich bundles and then just unbundle them and just like have their front running leg happen and then steal their money with the back, etc. Sandwich yeah. the Reaper, later changed name to Low Carb the Crusader, did an attack, which is basically that, okay? Like it used a bug to achieve it, but basically the validator potentially could wreck the builder, could wreck the searcher. If yeah. you're Lido or you're Coinbase, you probably don't have an incentive to do it because you're playing a repeated game. But if you're yeah. a Sono validator, this is your single shot, you know, like just steal $20 million and disappear into the sunset, turn off the value, like <laughs> who cares even if you get to... So the builder have a problem trusting the validator the validator also have a problem trusting the builder, okay? If the builder just say, oh, sign this blindly, this would pay you a million dollar, and then he doesn't pay him a million dollars, okay? Promise, this would pay you a hundred million dollars, okay? The builder, the validator signed that. The builder actually don't pay him a hundred million dollars. It would actually take all the money to itself and disappear into the sunset. So you have this problem of, of trust. And so relays are these trusted entities which sit in between, there's Flashbot, there's Flocksroute, there's yeah. Agnostic, and there's Ultrasound, and also now Aestus, which is a small one. And basically they act as like, a, custodian is the right word for it, but basically as a trusted entity in between. Get the block from the builder, the builder promised to pay some amount, give it to the validator to say, oh, it actually pays you the amount that, that it says, 
without actually revealing the validator signed it blindly and you brought the relay broadcast it into the network. So the relay sits in between. It's just being trusted by both entities and it does it for free and for no good reason and just try to be a good actor for the good of the ecosystem. And that is very unsustainable. And the yeah. reason that like, I'm like, wait, what? Because you were right, the relay has an edge. It could look what everybody are doing and you right. know, outread everybody else. But if it did that, then it won't be a neutral relay. Builders yeah. would stop working with it. And so originally, no incentive was set in place for the relays because yeah. you can't make relays that got incentive compatible. The incentive for the relay is always, oh, just steal the money and disappear. Take the best block from the best block builder, change it, promise stupid amount of money to the validator to sign it, the validator signs it, and then just take the money and disappear. So because there wasn't a good solution for that, basically there was no incentive was set in place for the relays, which in my opinion is stupid and fragile. Okay, right now, it adds fragility to Ethereum. We have trusted entities, trusted entities in Ethereum, and they're building 93% of all blocks in Ethereum. I think people should be aware of it. And so like, is this crazy? Yeah. So there isn't an edge. We're slightly different than that because we're an infrastructure company. So we actually send blocks faster and we improve latency. And we're the only relay as far as I know, who actually can make money. Ultrasound, the largest relay, bleed money. Agnostic, bleed money. Block Native used to bleed money. Now they shut down the relay because Matt Cutler, who I really like, said like, it doesn't really make sense for us to subsidize the staking pools. Right? It's kind of like saying all the validators, think Lido, think Coinbase, think, think Binance, think Rocket Pool, all of them. The validators make, pardon my language, shitload of money. And it's kind of like, okay, we relay subsidize it and run infrastructure for like half a million dollars per year. You know, speaking of validators making shit tons of money, <laughs> I was looking at LibEVM's Cryptic Woods, the leaderboard, and they recently added how much profit and tips and how much profit and tips that the validators and the builders are doing. And actually today, as of, you know, the 19th of December, you know, Titan tipped 204 ETH for 3.7 ETH profit. <laughs> and that's for a total of 1,690 blocks. And the validator for the day, they got 800 ETH of profit versus the builder profit of the day, 28.5. So it's a remarkable amount of money is going to the validator. My job in this interview or this conversation is to contradict you and disagree with you on everything. So let me take my counter argument for that. Validators okay. don't make as much money from NEV as people think. Okay. Why? Oh. I just looked at the numbers two days ago or something. Validators make from NEV something like $300 million in right. 2023. $300 million. For me, it's a lot of money. And for you, it's a lot of money. And almost for everybody in the world, $300 million is a lot of money. But if yeah. you are all the validators with all the stake and you have 60 billion dollars worth of ETH stake, then this adds your APY. It moves it from 4% to 4.4% APY. So this is 0.4% APY. This is big money for anybody except for the Ethereum validators and specifically Ethereum stakers. So I argue that NEV is actually smaller than people think. It isn't big money compared to 
the large bag of ETH that validators have. It only increases APY by less than half a percent. That's my contrarian point on that. And the follow-up on if it's not that big of money is to question, did we make the right decision by changing how Ethereum works, by centralizing the block builders, by using trusted relay, because we were so afraid from the centralizing force of NEV, and at the end of the day, the centralizing force of MEV is less than half a percent of APY. Is it as big of a deal as we were making it to be? And I'm arguing that it isn't. I think we made a giant mistake with PBS and we made the wrong decision and we should maybe reconsider. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of private transactions. I think it caused more harm than good, even though the intentions were good. You mentioned your solution to this would be the validators will build the blocks and you would split profit 50-50 in some regard. I forgot how it was, but this was like a talk in Paris, I think. Yeah, so again, we talk in Paris on that, which the TLDR is validators could make more money instead of front running and extracting the most MEV, they could actually make more money by being a service provider and provide real-time pre-confirmation. But before maybe going into that, let's understand why we did the PBS, okay? We knew block builders are going to be centralized and we knew they're going to be an order flow and we knew they're going to be trusted relays in the middle and we knew it's a bad thing. Nobody thought that private order flow is a good thing instead of sending it to the mempool. And nobody thought that it's a good thing that all the builders are centralized and that we use trusted entity in order to build blocks. The argument, and I think Vitalik made it almost two years ago in the salon, in the MEV salon in Vienna, was we know it's a bad thing, but we're intentionally choosing to do it because we don't want centralization. So the thinking before the merge was we don't want all the stake to go to the best validator who does the best MEV and has the highest APY. The rationale was, if I have ETH, who do I give it to the validator that makes 4.1 APY or 4.2? 4.2, obviously. So the fear was that MEV would cause a centralization and all the stake would flow to the validator that makes the highest MEV and highest APY. And that's really bad. So this is centralizing the validators, etc. So the idea was maybe we can prevent this doom scenario. Maybe we can, instead of it, say, listen, there's going to be economies of scale. There's going to be centralization. Let's make validators into dumb pipes. They would just get blocks from others, and the centralization would only happen in the builder space. Okay, so builder would be centralized but they would offer it to all the validators. So prevent validator and stake centralization by containing the centralization in the builder space. That was the rationale. And at the time, it sounded like a good idea. We don't want to centralize the validators, but it's been over a year since the merge and the move to POS. And we see that the assumption that people would just move to the highest APY is wrong. In reality, it's just not true. Why? Coinbase base charges 25% of the yield from its stakers. And it still has like, I think like 14% of the stake. People stake with Coinbase, despite they'll be making way more money somewhere else. And why is that? Two reasons. One is because they trust Coinbase more than they trust others. Second 
it's not that they're not smart or they're idiots or they're retail, so they don't know what's good for them. No, the average staker at Ethereum in the Coinbase has something like $600 worth of ETH. So if he moves it to somewhere else, it would cost him, let's say, like $12 or something. It would cost him 2% off his amount to move it to somebody else. And it would take like two years to break even. Even if somebody else offers slightly higher APY, just the friction of moving it to somewhere else and staking it. So they're not dumb. It just doesn't make sense for them to move, which is why Coinbase can charge that. No charges, 10%. So if there are two groups, retail and institution, you see that for sure retail is not going to where the highest APY is. They go to Coinbase because they trust it or because they're already there. They go to Lido because they like the LST. They go to basically everybody are charging between 5% and 25% off the yield. And yeah. people still use that. It just doesn't go to the highest APY. If you think about, so that's like one group, that's the retail group. If you think about institutionals, then they actually care more about BIPs and like, okay, this one is slightly better. They will play that game, but a little about making a higher APY. They care much, much more about legal liability and visibility, okay? So if you think about an entity, I'm just throwing it in. Think BlackRock. Okay, BlackRock takes its ETH and it's like, okay, I'm going to stake it. You think BlackRock wants to run a validator with front run and back run and sandwich users and does all sorts of stuff which isn't necessarily clear from a regulatory perspective? Of course not. But like it doesn't, BlackRock would not extract MEV given the choice because the slightly higher API nowhere nearly is good enough to push them to do that. Even think of Coinbase, okay? Coinbase, who I really, really, really like, leading the charge for like good DeFi and crypto and value, et cetera. You think their legal team is going to say, oh yes, it's fine that your validator front run and sandwich users and you see this transaction, but no, 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 run vanilla. So this initial assumption that all the state would just go to whoever has the highest APY is wrong. Like it makes sense in like you, you know, game theoretic model which glazed over all the real world details in reality it doesn't happen so we centralized builders and we added trusted relays and we did all of that and we introduced pbs to prevent a thing which isn't happening we're seeing that stake isn't going to the highest apy so i'm actually wondering if this was a mistake i wonder if we wanted to do the right thing here but we over indexed on how smart we are and that like we can predict how things would play out and things are playing out completely different. And so back to the original point, how big is MEV? $300 million plus 0.4 APY, less than half a percent. That's how big the centralization force of MEV. And I think this is something that people should kind of like rethink. Hmm. Is that including sex decks or is that just MEV? This is just like, if you look at Leap EVMs like that, where this is how much is actually being paid to the validator. This is how much money they're making. This is how much money blocks have paid them. This includes CFI, DeFi arbitrage, which from conversations with builders, they Frontier and Stefan and Keith from Frontier, who I really like, wrote yeah. in their post that they think that CFI DeFi arbitragers keep something like half of the value. I think that's a strong overestimation, seeing some of the data and some of the other stuff around it. They Mm. pass something like 90% of the value 
to the validators. So C by default arbitrage are like they have risk. They won't necessarily, they obviously make a profit, but the profit isn't, oh, we keep half of the, of, of the value. No, they pass along something like 90% of the profits of the value that they extract. Yeah. If this numbers, this 300 million per year, is how much is actually being paid to the validators. So that's including everything. Yep. This is the amount being paid. Mm. I think it's a good rationale. You know, if like you think about it from an institutional point of view, they don't want to test the waters with being, you know, doing, you know, front running, back running, sandwiching from a legal point of view, it's just not good risk reward, right? Whereas the retail keeps switching to APRs, you're just paying a fee each time. And so you're eventually never going to get to the point of breaking even in a short amount of time, right? The incentives are not there. So then it does make sense. But, you know, maybe it does change if we did change it from the builders being centralized and then a new game occurs and then all these unexpected things happen again. You never know until you're in the game itself. We already predicted this stuff and it turns out to be not what we predicted at all. <laughs> and I mean, you never know until you're in the game. I agree. So I think step one, which is like, oh, maybe we're not as smart as we think. Okay, let's not over-index on how smart we are and how we can predict how the future is going to be. I think that would be a good starting point. The model that says everything else being equal, stakers would move their stake to the validator that makes the highest APY, glazes over optics, legal liability, cost and friction of moving the money and changing, etc. So putting that aside, like, okay, maybe our mental models aren't necessarily correct. And that's true for all of us. I don't know everything. You don't know everything. I remember speaking with Vitalik at 2017, and he was kind of like explaining to me how light clients are just around the corner because it's a sole problem already. And it's kind of like, it's a matter of eight months or something like that. And I love Vitalik. I think he's awesome. This is not a criticism of him. It's kind of like, nobody here knows what's going to happen in the future, how that's going to play out, right? We had plasma, yeah. we had all sorts of stuff, and we evolved over time. So let's not think that we know how things are going to play out. Let's not drastically change everything that we do in the decentralized and censorship resistant context based on what we think how things are going to play out. Now, going back to your earlier question, okay, okay, Hori, smart test. So what are you actually proposing? Step one is that grain of salt. Let's rethink if we know how things are going to play out. Second thing is to point out Again, the goal isn't to make all the validator make the same APY. We don't centralize the block building and Ethereum and add fragility so the solo validator could make the same amount of money as Lido. Okay, it would be nice, but that's not the goal. The goal is to make it censorship resistant, okay? If you have all sorts of gangs trying to steal money from travelers, you don't go around and say, well, you know, the small gangs aren't stealing as much money as the big gangs. Maybe we'll have like an organized professional group to steal money from the users and then distribute it equally so all the gangs, small and big, would get the same amount. Right? This isn't the goal. The goal is censorship resistance and neutrality. And the only reason we introduced PBS was to prevent validator centralization. If this isn't happening, then we should rethink everything else. My third point, which goes back to your question, is, okay, so what do we do? I argue that the MEV auction, it's not a zero sum. It's a negative sum game, okay? When you do an auction, then validators, it maximizes the slice of pie that they extract. So you have an auction and they extract the most value. That value isn't made of thin air. It came from 
DeFi LPs and users losing money and getting sandwiched and crumbling and all these kind of things. If DeFi and uh, users and LPs bleed money, then DeFi is less useful, right? If I have a thousand dollar and I want to buy ETH, I'm better off going and buying it on Coinbase than trying to buy it on Uniswap. Because at Coinbase, I would get the current correct price. And on Uniswap, if price goes up, my transaction would fail. If price goes down, by the time it executes, I would still pay the amount that I was willing to make. So the more value they extract, that value comes from DeFi. DeFi is less useful. So DeFi will have less activity and less liquidity because people would stay in centralized finance in CeFi. And the more they stay there and the less liquidity and activity, there's less MEV for the validators to capture. So this is a negative sum game. The more MEV they capture now, the less MEV they're going to make to act in the future because they make, they keep DeFi a niche and not being capable of competing with CeFi, which in my mind yeah. is the end game. DeFi should compete with DeFi, not be this cartwheel running behind DeFi. The worst thing you can do, I was speaking to Josh from Aori actually about this. And if you think about MEV, right, and LP is, if I'm an MEV team, I'll do a JIT, right? So if I see someone doing a swap, I'll just dump in a bunch of money into that LP at that specific price. If it's V3, if it's V2, just dump it all in. And then you take out majority of the fees when they do the swap. And so the people that have been LPing for, let's say, months or weeks, right, have <laughs> just been rugged from someone that's been in there for one block. So you're right for two reasons. One, if somebody makes a swap, then if that trade is a bad trade, then people would add liquidity. But if that trade is a good trade, people won't add liquidity in. Okay, so this is like just-in-time liquidity comes only when the user makes wrong trades, trading in the wrong direction. They won't add liquidity yeah. and lose money helping somebody else. So this isn't like, oh, this helped all the users. No, it helps only yeah, the user no. making bad trades. <laughs> That's one. Second, really the LPs who are there, they provide price discovery, but eventually all the fees go to whoever did the JIT, the just-in-time liquidity. They're being used to discover, price is being discovered through them, but they're not the one to actually benefit from the fees. So I agree with you. Yeah, they're just getting completely wrecked. <laughs> they're basically exit liquidity is what they're doing. <laughs> I agree. And so going back to like, okay, Uri, what are you offering? My vision, which needs to be proven still, is right. that can we have users pay lower fees, LPs make more money, and validators make more money? And the way I see that is to exit and not participate in MEV auctions, which again, it's kind of like an auction reaches a maximum, right? It's the slice of the pie of the validator, but it's a local maximum, okay? It makes the pie smaller. DeFi will never compete with CeFi if it sucks and it can provide better execution. And so my alternative to say, let's not have an auction. Let's not reach a maximum point, but be bigger. Okay, so my thinking, my end game vision is, can a validator offer real-time pre-confirmation? Basically, all validators need to do is say, like, oh, this is one, this is two, this is three, this is four. Think basically Arbitrum sequencer who sees transactions, okay, this is one, like just do this in real time. And when the block comes, just actually do that. But then if you're doing it instantaneous transactions, then you have the argument of equality, right? You just have this firm, right? They have the best computer in the world, best latency, and they're just, they, they have an insane edge of everyone else. So here, I agree. That's another contrarian argument here. Everybody hate HFTs. Why do they hate HFTs? Why are the higher frequency trading are so hated? Not because 
they correct the price. But because they front run, if I am the user and I have $1,000 and I want to buy ETH, I actually want high-frequency traders to yeah. invest in their intra and trade really, really fast. So anytime the price moves, they correct it. Okay, so price goes up, but now it changes on Coinbase or on Binance or somebody else. They have price in one exchange affect others. And if DeFi was real time, it would also be equal in this game. But if price goes up, I want them to correct the price and be super fast. So when I make a trade, I don't have like seven monitors open in front of me. What's the price on Coinbase? What's in Binance? I just want to send a trade and get the current correct price. I don't want to be faster than Wintermute or Jump or any of the others. I'm not trying to be picosecond. Like I'm not trying to capture the picosecond arbitrage opportunity. I just want to get whatever is the right price right now. So arbitrages are actually a good thing. They correct the price. They make sure everybody, anywhere, any venue, you get the correct price. Because if not, they would already capture the arbitrage. The reason people don't like them is exactly for what PBS kind of like normalizes is front running. Okay, if I'm about to buy ETH, I don't want somebody else to say, oh, he's about to buy ETH. Let me buy ETH before he buys because he's going to move price up. And now my trade gets a worse price. And then he sells after me just to capture that, you know, he bought it before I moved the price up. Then he sold me after I moved the price and he makes using this sandwich capture some of the value. So HFTs suck not for doing arbitrage. Arbitrage is the good thing of their existence. And it's okay for them to make money. Like I'm sure they should do that. They should correct the price anywhere. The bad thing that the reason people hate them is because they're doing front running and in the context of DeFi sandwiching, which all of a sudden we're kind of like normalizing and say, oh, this is fine. It's okay. It's part of how the system works. So to your point, if we have inequality, then I want all the arbitragers and I want all the HFTs to work and try to correct the price. So users who aren't arbitragers can send a trade and anywhere it executes, you know, it gets to the value. They say, oh, this is one, this is two, this is three. This trade is next. And that will always, always have the correct price. Does that make sense? Yeah. The thing is, like sandwiching, if you're a user, you don't really know about slippage or any of the stuff if you're just retail. But like the other day, I was shitcoining and I purposely set my slippage to zero so I wouldn't get sandwiched in a public mempool. And I don't know if I did. I didn't check. But if there's no slippage, we'll see. There's nothing to abuse. But let's talk about it. You send the trade. There are three things that could happen. You send the trade and it will execute in like six seconds or eight seconds or two when the next block is mined. Or when it gets to the block builder and the block builder gives it to the relay and the guild block. But within a few seconds. If you said slippage is zero, I want this price, and price goes up, your transaction fails. Okay, you just paid. And if this is Ethereum, then you actually paid a lot for it. So you send your transaction, so it fails, and you just spent money on that. If price goes down, on the other hand, you're still going to pay the price you are willing to pay. Okay, if fees go down, it's like, oh, this guy is willing to buy it at $1,000. Price already just dropped to $900. I'll sell it to him for $1,000, right? I'll buy it at $900. So you're going to pay that amount. And if you're going to try and prevent the transaction from reverting, then you're going to add a bit of slippage because the price move just a tad, I'm still willing to do it. At which point you just signed off yourself. I will accept this price no matter what. You'll get that worth execution price. So it's not just retail retail or dumb. No, retail, unless you can see the future. Like, okay, I know what the price is going to be in six seconds. Then you have no choice. 
you're choosing between adding slippage and paying higher and taking the chance of your trade just fading. And so like, you know, you go to some, you know, your shitcoining, super volatile. It's, I don't know, it's Bonk on Solana or something like that. Okay, like it moves up, it moves out or mobile, any of these. I don't know what's the correct price. Like it depends on the millisecond. It really is changing really, really fast. It is impossible for me to set it to the right slip and say, what's the price? I just want the current correct price. Whatever is the price right now, I want that. Which is why I like arbitrage. I forget traders. Their job is to correct it at any point. So when my trade comes, I know they already captured the arbitrage. I wonder what it would look like if we had the private transactions by default, and when they're sent to the mempool, all you see is the value of ETH, basically. So then the block builders can still order them, but then they don't know what the transactions are to like abuse it. I wonder if that would be an interesting game. So let's say a few things here. Private transaction, as somebody who provides private transaction and provided private transaction before Flashbot existed, okay? Like mid 2020, we were the first to do it. One Inch were the per- first big consumer facing company to use our service to offer it to users to avoid front running. Private transactions suck. Basically the model is I would give it to you guys and I trust you not to screw us over. Okay, so you could be Bloxroute, you could be the builders, you could be something else. And the entire point was to remove, of crypto and DeFi is to remove intermediaries, right? The entire point is not to have to rely on them, including Bloxroute. Okay, we make a lot of money off all these things and I still think it's a bad thing. And so private transaction isn't this like great utility or something. Oh, I just gave it to Flashbot and I trust them not to front run me. The alternative for that to say, okay, let's do encrypted transactions, okay, a threshold encryption yeah, or something like that. Basically, no, you, you propagate transactions, you don't know what's in them, and then after they're kind of like confirmed, etc., then they're revealed after the fact once majority of key holders agree to, to reveal them. The downside of something like that, who's doing that? I'm thinking scroll, but I want whisper, blacking on the name. The three potential downsides of it is, okay, now MEV extractors, nobody knows the order. So just spam transaction, try to capture ARB by just statistically, you might be making money out of that. So just spam the network with trying to capture ARB and maybe you're, you know, send like a lot of them and some of them would land somewhere that, that makes sense. So that's one yeah. bad thing. Second bad thing is that, as I said earlier, I actually want arbitrage to correct the price. So when I send my trade, I don't get the worst. Again, I'm a user. I'm not an arbitrage. I just want, of course, oh yes, of course I want to buy ETH at a dollar, but I'm not getting that, right? I want to just get the current correct price. I don't want to get screwed over. I'm not asking for any like special treatment somehow to get a lower price, but I do want to get the current correct price. Yeah. If arbitragers can't correct the price, they don't know when this thing is happening. Then when my trade executes, I don't get the current correct price. I get what used to be the price. Maybe price went up since then. Maybe price went down since then. But I'm not going to get whatever is the current correct price. So that's another thing that you lose in doing something like like encrypted mempool. And the third thing is, in my view, the role of DeFi is to compete with CeFi. It needs to be at least as good. If you want people to be capable or large entities to trade on DeFi, 
Uh-huh. Saying something like, well, you make a trade and you don't know what price you're going to get, but then a bit afterwards, you'll know what trends are executed and then you'll know the price. And if you're like, I don't know, a hedge fund that have to be like Delta, you can't make trades and not know what price are they going to happen and know about afterwards, right? You have to kind of like make transaction in tandem. I'll sell this asset and I buy that asset to hedge and all these kinds of things. You can't have stuff that you adding this additional latency make DeFi less useful. And B, making less useful, less capable of competing with CFI. So yeah. encrypting the transaction has its own cost to utility. I think it might just be better off to be on the rollups and other chains like Aztec. I think those are pretty interesting. I wonder how they'll really progress. If you move to an L2, you have two types of L2. You have an L2 that's using like a single sequencer, like Arbitrum, or you could yeah. have a committee, right? And be decentralized. If it yeah. is a single sequencer, Let's say this, it's a U.S. entity, and tomorrow there's a war with Russia or with China or something like that, and the DOJ, whoever knocks on you and say, you're not allowed to touch any wallets, which here's a giant list. These are all Chinese or Russian citizens related. (laughs) They're OFAC. Do not touch them if you do 30 years in jail if you do that. So it's a rollout. They could still just trade on L1. They were just off-boarded. So they can't use the L. The L2 fallback is not to exist and not to provide the utility, but it isn't censorship resistant providing this thing that we're trying to build here. So if you have just a centralized sequencer, I'm not sure what you're getting. If you have a committee, then yeah. you have exactly the same problem. Like how is that different from an L1? Yeah, yeah, 100%. I think Solana kind of solves the problem in a way because it is significantly cheaper than Ethereum and faster, and it is an L1. But when people think about crypto, they think about Ethereum or Bitcoin. They don't really think about Solana. I agree. Solana has a lot of proving still to do, et cetera, but they're basically trying to achieve that. Although I really like the Gito team. Gito is doing something similar to Flashbot, um, but very similar yeah, yeah. to Flashbot on on the, and I like Buffalo and I like the team and I really like them and I hate their product. They have the staking <laughs> product, which I admire and I think it's super cool. And kind of like, okay, let's have that all that happening on chain. It's super cool. But their idea to MEV, I, and I told them that, like I, I, I told Lucas, I go, this breaks the value proposition of Solana. Right? If Solana is this fire hose that, and again, needs to be proven, needs not to halt, has like, like it's nowhere as mature and uh, stable as we want it or people want it to be. But if you have this fire and you have fire dancers, the new client, and it's, yeah, about, yeah. I don't know, a thousand or 10,000 transactions, but then like every important transaction that touches the put it on hold, send it to an auction, have the auction wait for like, or I don't know, 1.2 seconds to the less shred off the block, off the last block in the sprint. And then try to front run back. If you bring all this, pardon me, if you bring all this shit to Solana, what did Solana achieve really, right? If they're going to do exactly the same thing, then that's not going to be a useful DeFi ecosystem. Because if right. I want to trade, you know, you have Phoenix, which is like an order book. And it's like, okay, I want to buy, I want to sell it. But if all my trades first go to somebody who gets a peek at it and can front run and back run and whatnot to it, then it's a bad thing. So I hope they do something better than the MEV auction on Solana. I think there are better options out there. Mm. Man, it's just, it's such a hard problem. But if you do crack it, then it kind of changes everything. But there's also like the underlying, um, like if it did all work, it's still not the same as CeFi because you have the underlying risk of getting, if you're staking, like let's say, or LPing an Intel protocol, that protocol could have a vulnerability, you know, and that's inherent risk of the code bases. 
So let's separate the two things here. I agree and disagree with you. So first thing, the first argument here is forget about cracking the problem. Forget maybe Uri doesn't have a good solution. But the first part is, should we change how, or were we right to change how Ethereum works and how block building works and centralized block building and use trusted relay and all of that to prevent stake going to the highest APY validator and ruin DeFi and play this negative sum game? And then we're kind of like, well, you know what? In retrospect, stake doesn't go there. So we did all of that kind of like for nothing. That's one thing. Even if I don't have a better solution, maybe not having a solution is potentially better, okay? The point number one is, do we want Ethereum to be decentralized and censorship resistant, which it achieves? It achieves by being decentralized, right? If you have validators all around the world and they're not limited by a single jurist or, you know, four entities of relays or, I don't know, 12 builders or something like that. So that's one point. Even without solving it, like, were we right to change how Ethereum works to solve this non-existing problem? In my opinion, no, obviously. But I think people should be aware of it, should think about it, definitely before we enshrine the thing. The second thing is like, okay, what can we do and what is a solution for that? And like, can DeFi compete with CeFi? So I'm a giant DeFi bull, okay? And my favorite story about DeFi and why I think it's valuable is that when I was in, again, Pantera name comes up, in Pantera Summit 2019, there was the former head of the CFTC. And he was telling the story how in 2008, during crisis, he was at the White House. Lehman Brother is about to crash. They all sit there and they have to decide whether to save Lehman Brother or to let it crash. And they look and they're like, well, we actually have enough money to prevent Lehman Brothers from crashing. And we can save maybe two more or three more. But if there are like 20 such banks out there, we can save them. We'll use our bullet to save something and then how things are going to crash anyway. And they had to reach a decision whether to save Lehman Brothers or let it crash. And as you know, they did let it crash. Now, 2008, um, subprime crisis, everything around it, giant global economic catastrophe. And then like four years later, they end up thumbing the books because each one of the banks have a different book and they each have like these weird ass, like, okay, I have mortgages, then I put them together, then I slice them, then I sell it to other banks who take them and swoosh them together and then make that into slice and sell to others. So they're all holding some part of financial instruments off one another. And then it took them like four or five years to look up all the numbers. They're like, oh, you know what? There were like two banks like that. They could have prevented the entire 2008 financial crisis. They had the funds, but they didn't have clarity. They didn't have insight into how these banks, how much they actually have and don't have. Now, this information, this isn't like a business secret or something. This is public information, regulators have it, very spread across 30 different systems, each one different, and et cetera. And so if banks were on DeFi, okay, if this entire DeFi global financial system is on a thing which is completely transparent, and you actually know we're saying that by itself is of immense value that people don't understand. Is this company, is it okay? Is it not okay? What are actually the holdings? All this thing, even think like SVB, right? Like the Silicon Valley, like, like banks falling and et cetera. If that information was out there and it should already be out there, just like not very accessible, then that by itself is extremely valuable. Having a single global, always on permissionless financial system for the world, for me, 
is the, the reason to get up in the morning. The reason that we're trying to make crypto, that the reason that we do all that we do and we work on it and we're so excited. So is there a smart contract risk? For sure. There are a million other risks. We're still building it, right? You, people make ACH transfers and then it gets lost, kind of like how mail gets lost. They don't know where the packet went and they don't know where the money is. Okay, that doesn't also work. Then they have to pick up the phone and call other banks, figuring out where the money went. So is the system perfect and ready for production, for global use? Of course not. But that doesn't mean that it's not valuable or that it's less valuable than CFI in any way, in my opinion. No, I 100% agree. I super hate banks with my experience with them. I don't know if you run the company. The single thing that if I have money and I want to send it, then I can, is a thing I can do in crypto and I can't do with bank. It's kind of like, oh, I'm abroad and yeah. I'm trying to use my credit card and it says, oh, this is potentially a fraud. And like, you know, I'm in a different country. This is how I pay for stuff. And now I have to figure it out. Or I want to make a transfer. Oh, it's a big transfer. You need to come into the bank and stand in line and spend it out. Like if you're speaking with investors and entities and et cetera, the value of something like USDC is immense. Just that I want to send something. I sent it anywhere, immediately, done. Do not underestimate how valuable and what a giant product market fit this has. Oh, no, I'm certain. I was sending money to Dubai from Australia and four months later or six months later, they hold my account and give me like a 15 question, like a <laughs> document to unlock my account. I'm like, what? They've been using you guys for years. What is this? <laughs> I was paying rent. Guys, come on. <laughs> it was just like a giant doc just in, to unlock my account. In 2015, I moved here from Israel to the US and I did my PhD here. And me and my wife bought a condo. And so to put like a down payment, I needed to transfer money from Israel to here. And then, I don't know if you know it, but in the US, when you start a contract, you need to pay some money. If you fail to put that amount, then you lose the good faith. Or I don't even remember the term for that. I was that close to lose money because the money didn't arrive in time. Because my bank in Israel was kind of like, what, you're moving that money to US? How come? And, you know, they're calling me, but when they call me, it's the middle of the night. I miss the conversation. Then it's the weekend. The weekend here is not the same as the weekend there. It took me like, I don't know, five days to solve it. And I was so close to losing my honest money or whatever it's called, because it just took me so long to try to, and these weren't even that big of sums. Like, uh, let's say, I think it was like under 100K. Okay, like big money, definitely for me, definitely then, but not like, oh, I'm moving $10 million. No, no, 100K to buy a house somewhere else. And they're like, it only cost me quite a lot. Mm. Yeah, I was just trying to get money out of my bank in Dubai and it, it took them two months to even enable the withdrawal. And that was ridiculous. And I still haven't got it. It's been like four months now. So it's just kind <laughs> of, it's just still there and I can't touch it, which is insane to me. Uh, like they want me to go into the country to the specific branch to get it out. I'm like, what? Every time you interact with Trump, kind of like, oh, you know what? What we're making here is actually is valuable. It's kind of like that at least has been my experience. Every time you have to actually do something and you're like, oh, wait, yes, this is terrible. Like, our, the existing system, systems suck. Oh, yeah, that's super bad. The future is definitely going to be a mixture of AI, crypto, and robotics. It's just going to be the money of the world eventually. It's just the system right, right now is so inefficient. I don't want to live in that world of banks. I, I totally so agree. Bad. It's just time consuming and too much tape to go through just to get your money out. It's ridiculous. Like it's your money. You should be able to move it instantly, right? 
it seems like a given, but apparently it's not. Yeah, if I can send an email somewhere, and if I can send a text somewhere, I could probably send money. It literally bits. It's the same I, thing. I feel like it is all a game there because it is the business for them. And so they want to keep your money. Of course. As as they make it way harder, which is I mean, understandable from their point of view. I remember speaking with a director at MasterCard a while ago. I really, like a few years ago. And she was kind of like, do you think it costs them? It doesn't really cost them that much money to make a transfer, you know, percentiles of like, like of, of cents, obviously, because if you, if it could be cheap to be done on chain, it's much, 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 much cheaper to do it like in the centralized setup. And so most of the money and all the fees that they're taking, A, they need to make a profit. B, a significant amount is also, okay, like fraud protection and whatnot, because depending on the country, they lose money on that. But the biggest thing is, okay, they will charge 3% from the retail and then pass, you know, 2% of cashback or something like that to the retail user. So the retail user is like, oh, I make a trade and I get 2% discount anywhere I go. So most of the value is passed back to the retail. So it feels like it's cheaper, but then like, you know, prices increase because now everything is now 3% more costly, but it keeps that network effect. If I buy something with a credit card, then I get 2% back. If I buy it in a different way, then I'm not getting that 2% back. So I am very incentivized to do that. It is extremely cheap for the existing product systems to actually make payments. Payment is, it's not costly. Anyway, uh, that's my rant on that. We hate banks, TLDR. Okay. <laughs> um, every time I go there, I remember why. Yeah, it's just like PTSD every time I step foot into a bank. In terms of DeFi, you know, if someone wanted to get into into the relay game, man, what do you recommend? You, I mean, obviously, it, it would be you, you're already kind of dominating. We're really dominating as a service provider. Okay, so the really like our big business is to work with builders and work with BSC valid and work with Ethereum validators and offer them more features and all these kind of. That's our real business. We do a relay. Because it's a good, again, we're the only entity that actually can make, charge money on that. And we have like partnership with builders to capture some of the value because if they don't use us, they make less money. So it's kind of like, okay, it's, it's easy for us to capture that. But because we spend the last five years building infrastructure for that purpose. And so there's no business in being currently in being a relay. So if you want to do something cool, like go try to be a builder, go try to be a searcher. I'm not sure if the thing that you want to do is be a relay that offers services for free and try to be nice for everybody and 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 kind of like help facilitate the trade, et cetera, and not get paid for it. So that's what I would tell like people I think don't understand how the sure. relays aren't a business in most cases. Again, we are because relay is a thing that we do to support everything else that we do. The other relay is just bleed money. Think about like hundred K per year of costs plus two engineers. Okay, DevOps, this need to be super high performance, blah, 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 blah. Half a million per year. So if you're thinking about it, you can, re- maybe you should speak with the relay first. Go speak with Justin, go speak with Martin, go speak with Max for my estes. Like, I'm not sure they'll tell you it's a smart business move. Man, you, you think it's a hundred K to run a relay? A, yes. B, think about it. This is a high performance server that connected to get bids. Everybody keep hammering it to get what is the highest, latest bid. So it has like the real cost is sending traffic outside. So you keep sending messages outside. Uh, yeah. And then you have to, when somebody signs it, then you broadcast 
the block and you try to make the, the as fast as possible, etc. So this just means like, like like that's it. It's basically high frequency trading without the profit. It's high frequency traders, but you subsidize the large validators that has sixty billion dollar worth of, so they make a slightly higher APY. That's the system, which is the reason. Again, Matt Cutler took like block made and like they weren't running out of money. They're fine and they're a good team and they're super smart. This is a terrible. This is not even a business. Okay, it's kind of like. Why would we do that? I'm not mm. even talking about like OFAC and yep. censorship resistance, okay, which is like an entire can of worms that potentially require discuss. Mm. You know, when when you think about it though, if if everyone's partnering with you, then it's just a like an, an even playing field, right? If, if everyone's partnered and they all have the same deal, the searches that don't have like, are using you, then they just lose. But the people that are, it's just kind of a de facto standard. And so they need to find an edge somewhere else, right? It's kind of what I'm getting at this. Yeah, it's a, here's the interesting thing. Think about builders are DeFi, DeFi arbitrages. Okay, these are the dominating ones. Uh, tight less though. So they win when there's less CFI DeFi ARB. Yeah. But when CFI yeah. DeFi ARB, then it's, you know, Arsync and Beaver are the big winners. Basically, think about it. Think that Beaver has a block that pays $100 and Arsync has a block that pays $100. If one of them get one additional transaction, it doesn't even have any MEV in it. Okay, this transaction that somebody sends like, like like an NFT to somebody else, and it pays sent to the validator for fee for their priority. Then whoever has that, if the other entity doesn't have it, then he would win. Not because of MEV, just because of access to order flow. So the all the block builders are working number one on being C by DeFi arbitrage and good at it. But the second thing is getting order flow. So this entire thing becomes like, how could I get private order flow from anybody? And so this is what they're working on, trying to get the most private order flow, especially the exclusive one, because it yeah. gives them an advantage compared to the other one. And again, this is not the DeFi removing intermediaries, which, I'm, which I want to see in the world. Mm. So like, I don't know that that's a good thing. We're doing fine. We're doing great, but we'll do... We did fine before POS, we did fine before Flashbot, we did fine before MV, and we'll be fine afterwards because people would need low latency connectivity to hear about price changes to send it. Like, I'm not worried about us. But if I'm thinking where I want DeFi and crypto to go, I'm not sure we're heading in the right direction. Yeah, I agree. Okay, let's say they wanted to spin up their own relay then. Let's say they were like, okay, we don't want to pay for your services, we can do it ourselves. And so nobody even chooses them as a relay and they're doing 2% of an entire network. I mean, they can still get all the all the mempools, right? If there was a good... Let, let's say you're an MEV team. Why would you run a relay instead of sending it to sure. ultrasound for really nice people and perhaps 30% of the hash rate? And it's kind of like, why would you pay half a million dollar worth per year on setting up a relay? Well, if you could make a faster one than the fastest one out there, right? And then, for sure, no one would send you anything, but at least you can get everything yeah. quicker than everyone else. And maybe you wouldn't even know that. It's just not business. So instead of that, you could say, like, go to the valley. So, like, it's not really a relay, right? The relay sits between the builder and the validator. Just like, oh, ask the validator to connect to the builder. The biggest BD hurdle in a relay is to get to the value there for them to be like, okay, let's connect and get it going. I was speaking with Justin Drake about like, oh, maybe an idea to improve like relay 
Oh, we could do that. And I was talking, maybe we, we launch another relay to do this feature. It's kind of like, if we do it, we improve our existing relay. I'm not going and try to persuade, and this is just in Drake, okay? I'm not going to try to persuade all the validators out there to try to connect with me. It's such a giant headache. And so mm. it's a big hurdle. But if you run a relay, you need to get connected to everybody, blah, 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 etc. If you want the speed, don't run it through a relay, okay? Send it directly from your builder to them. That's the centralization force that we're seeing. If you have a centralized builder, it would pick up the phone to Coinbase, to Lido, to where it's like, connect directly to me and I will send you faster and you'll get something better. This is the centralization for that we're seeing within PBS. And I'm not sure it's a good thing. I remember seeing on your website that you basically get all of the mempools to exist and you aggregate it and send it off to whoever connects with you, right? Or it does an exclusive deal, pays your services. Do you have to be relayed to do that though? No, no. Our main business, think about it. We have a network of servers which listen to the peer-to-peer network. And every time oh, we, okay. see, we hear a transaction or a block, we propagate it super fast for everybody else. We did that before being a right. relay. You could come and try to compete with us, but you should be very well capitalized, have a big team. We have a few years of advantage. I joke that the only competition I really care about is Amazon and Google and Cloudflare. Okay, like tier one networking infrastructure company, global infrastructure companies. Like if we make, you know, millions per year, they don't really care. If we make tens of millions of dollars, they start to care. And when we make like hundreds of millions, okay, then they'll come and compete with us. But my end game, imagine 10 years into the future, DeFi is as big as CeFi. Like like everybody will then tier one networking companies will try to provide services to send information fast because this is a financial infrastructure for the world. I currently have a network effect and I could win, but I, I like Cloudflare as an example. Like I can't compete on speed with Cloudflare and their, I don't know, 1200 engineers who are focusing on putting infrastructure in the ground, etc. So mm. eventually I'll see myself working with them. But it's kind of, this is another, like if you're in crypto, you think nobody owns the there's AWS and there's Google Cloud and there's an infrastructure and your internet service provider and you should be very much aware that these are entities that have power like this isn't happening in a vacuum you should know there's infrastructure under you and DeFi should be built in a way to be resistant for any one of them to try to tamper with it. So like I offer real-time services, whatnot, et cetera, almost at the speed of light. I don't want anybody ever to rely singly on me. I love the peer-to-peer network because it's resilient and robust. We're an enhancement to the peer-to-peer network. I mean, connect to the peer-to-peer network, also connect to me and in 99.9%, I will send you information faster. But always connect also to the peer-to-peer network because that's the DeFi superpower. That's the thing that's extremely hard to compete with. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Interesting. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. It's a it's a really powerful value proposition that you've kind of bundled all up into the relay as well. I agree, but again, <laughs> we did that before a relay was a thing like... like I would be more than happy to have to figure out a different business model and how to monetize what we do, et cetera, et cetera. If it means that DeFi is kicking ass in competing with CeFi, I'm sure we'll find it. I'm not worried. I want DeFi to be useful. I don't okay. want it to be like this sidecar running behind CeFi and being used for everything, which is kind of like, you know, again, being a niche. I want DeFi to compete with CeFi. Yeah, 100%. I, I see your point of view. That's interesting. 
Well, I hope it all goes well for DeFi, and because I really don't want to work with banks permanently, I want to to be the bank equivalent in just DeFi. We'll see in, in due time. A couple more bull runs, and, and hopefully we will be all right. Hopefully oh, we this seem bull to be in the right be trajectory. I, DeFi <laughs> is getting better. Okay, DeFi usability, the UX, they're like both wallets are getting better, yeah, protocols so. are getting better. And yes, and especially especially new protocols, yes, they need to all be battle tested and really hard and etc. If you tried to use DeFi three years ago, it was much, much worse. And if you tried like what? Kind of like when DeFi, you know, in 2020, okay, that's kind of like three, three and a half years ago. Like it was yeah, really, really more. hard just to figure out what it looks like. Yeah. I hope it all gets better and it will over time as long as uh things keep going in the way they've been going but i think this has been very useful and i've never really gone deep into relays and stuff like this so I, i'm very thankful for being able to spend time with you um and i'm sure we'll talk <laughs> again soon in the future <laughs> hopefully when banks are eliminated yes thank you for having me and allowing me to rant all my unpopular opinions of course. Anytime. Do it again. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people hearing this, and that, some people I really like, some, like, again, we talked about earlier before the call, talked about Stefan, one of the co-founders of uh, I've since left. Like, we disagree completely. I love the guy. I think he's a great guy. I think he was wrong, and et cetera. So a lot yeah. of good people would listen to that and might think I'm completely off. But that's also okay. <laughs> we should take our own opinion with a giant grain of salt. Let's not pretend that we know how things are going to play out. Yeah. Yeah, it's just at least getting the word out there to even have it in thought. Cool, Degachi. So uh, thanks for having me. Of course. Yeah. Thank you so much, Rory, for coming on. And I'm sure we'll talk again soon. But until then, thank you so much and take care. Thanks, man.